Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, a very special one-on-one conversation between Clay Jenkinson and the author, Bo Breslin. Bo Breslin of Skidmore College wrote a book called The Constitution for the Living, imagining how five generations of Americans would rewrite the nation's fundamental law. He kind of takes the uh, tear up the Constitution plan literally, doesn't he? And Jefferson wrote that famous letter to Madison in 1787 that we should tear up the Constitution once per generation, calculated that to be about 19 years, and most historians regard that as sort of a thought piece. But Bo Breslin took it seriously and said, well, what would have happened, do we think, had we every generation or so rewritten the Constitution of the United States? Would be a, a more perfect union or a worse one? And... Our conversation attempts to sort out that really interesting question. Please join us for all that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss historical American events with President Thomas Jefferson, who is seated across from me now. Good day to you, Mr. Jefferson. Good day to you, citizen. Mr. Jefferson, you spent eight years in the White House, correct? I did. And you must have accumulated things while you were there. I know you you did a lot of personal shopping for entertaining guests, and, and it was your responsibility to provide food and drink for your guests, and you must have accumulated some special things when you were at the White House. Well, I did. There were gifts that came in from people around the country. Meriwether Lewis sent a live prairie dog back from the plains of of uh, Dakota. Oh, my. I corresponded with people from all over the world. Uh, I collected scientific instruments. I, I looked at every piece of correspondence between the U.S. government and its citizens. So the, all of my cabinet ministers, of which there were just a handful, put all of their dispatches Through me, I looked at everything, both uh, what came in and what was released by the government of the United States. So in the course of all this, uh, I accumulated a fairly large stash of documents and other materials. Well, sir, the reason I bring it up is there's a a bit of an issue right now with a former president who supposedly has removed some sensitive documents when he left the White House. We don't know all the facts of this case But if we tie it back to your time, sir, you know, now there are provisions by law that anything a president writes or works on ends up in the National Archives, preserved for history. Was there anything like that during your time? And, and sir, did you take any sensitive documents out of the White House? I don't think that I would have taken anything of great sensitivity, things that were Cabinet documents, you know, War Department or Navy Department or Treasury Department, those would have stayed in those offices when I left. But as you know, I was a a stickler for record keeping and kept a copy of almost everything that I ever wrote. And so I had an immense correspondence, which I simply took back with me to Monticello. And all of my personal effects, of course, went to Monticello, the results of the Lewis and Clark expedition and so on. We didn't have a National Archives at the time, and so there was no place to deposit them, and certainly no law that required me to deposit public records in some place. I kept them, and I preserved them, knowing that at some point they would be useful, but they only wound up in your Library of Congress long after the fact. Uh, In my time, the Library of Congress was a library. It wasn't a, a manuscript collection, and so all of that was well into the future, but there is one 
sort of amusing story about this. As governor of Virginia, as you know, I served as governor of Virginia during the most difficult period of the Revolutionary War, I ordered Diderot's encyclopedia, and I kept them in the governor's office because I was so enamored of them and wanted so much to consult them. And when I went back to Monticello, I took them with me, and eventually the the state controller wrote to me and said, Mr. Jefferson, you're going to have to return that set of encyclopedia. And of course, I, I intended to all along, but I had, in fact, absconded with them, not intending to keep them, but intending to consult them until such time as they were claimed. That's quite a confession, Mr. Jefferson. I appreciate your honesty. Well, this is a very important uh, event in the history of knowledge. There was first Diderot's Encyclopedia, and then there was a second one, the Encyclopedia Methodique, and I had them for myself, and I ordered them for friends like James Madison. But when the governor's office got a set, I, I couldn't help but want to uh, consult them myself. And there were very few other people that were interested in them whatsoever. So I don't feel that I was committing any sort of a violation of my oath. But it is true that I had to be warned to return them at some point. Well, finally, Mr. Jefferson, not to make light of this, I mean, it is quite important that a, a president follows rules, especially with sensitive documents. Of course. You have a system in your time where every piece of presidential correspondence of any sort must be kept by the National Archives and Records Administration. There are very strict laws about these things. I entirely understand that. And as president, of course, or governor, I would have complied cheerfully with whatever laws were put before me, whether I approved of them or not. Thank you very much, Mr. Jefferson. You are welcome, sir. Hey, citizens, and welcome to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with or about President Thomas Jefferson. But this week, it's another one-on-one -on -one conversation between Clay Jenkinson and Bo Breslin. And Clay, tell us who he is. I saw the title of his book, A Constitution for the Living, imagining how five generations of Americans would rewrite the nation's fundamental law. And I thought, this guy is some sort of a Jeffersonian. And it turns out he is. He teaches at Skidmore. He's a listener. He's a fan of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. Uh, really? We've become good friends. I interviewed him about this. Jefferson, as you know, argued in a famous letter to Madison that we should tear up the Constitution once per generation and start over. And so Bo thought, well, what if we had? What would it look like? And so he took five different moments, generations in American history, and tried to posit it's fact and fiction combined, but it's mostly fact. Uh, what would have happened had we done that? And I was so intrigued by this that I said, I want to interview this man, contacted him. He was willing. Uh, we had a really, as you'll see, a very interesting conversation. Mostly we talked about where we are today 
and what sort of changes we would want, what, what provisions of the Constitution we would either want to address if we revised it today or would have to address as the 21st century unfolds. So that's the setup. And, you know, I said, you're the first person I've ever met who actually takes Jefferson's idea seriously. He said, I know. It's, it's amazing that he hasn't been treated better by historians for this because it, it actually is a really good thought experiment, and it might actually be a great thing to do. It's a great conversation, a lengthy one. We won't be able to broadcast all of it, but a great portion of it. And let's go to that now, and uh, we'll talk more in the next segment. So this is my conversation one-on-one with Professor Bo Breslin, The Constitution for the Living. I'm thrilled and delighted that you're willing to do this. I've got your book right here. It's a real honor to be here, I have to say, Clay. Just to get us started, can you just give the briefest biographical sketch and how you got to this project? Sure. Um, So I am a professor at Skidmore. I teach, I'm a political scientist, and uh, I went to the University of Pennsylvania uh, for my graduate program in part because all of the work that I had done leading up to that had been on the Supreme Court, and I was interested, Clay, in constitutions. And Penn offered me that opportunity to study constitutions. So for the last 25 years, I have been a constitutional theorist. I would describe myself that way. I like to think about constitutions. And this project came about in a conversation I had with a student. I was sitting there thinking about Jefferson, quite frankly, thinking about the ways in which that famous debate between Jefferson and Madison about the earth belonging to the living. And I thought to myself, what would happen if Jefferson had won that debate? And so she and I started to think about kind of projecting the ways in which American history would have changed and what those constitutions would have looked like. And the amazing thing for me, Clay, is I spent spent seven years as Skidmore's dean of the faculty. So I had started the project early and then came back to it when I finished, and nobody had done it. It seemed so simple to me, like... Let's just pretend we live in a Jeffersonian world and the Constitution was rewritten every generation. It's amazing to me that nobody did the project. Agreed. So among your works, Constitution for the Living, imagining how five generations of Americans would rewrite the nation's fundamental law, Stanford University Press 2021, from words to worlds, examining constitutional functionality, Johns Hopkins 2009, and communitarian constitution, Johns Hopkins 2004. So... Let's start this way. Some men look on constitutions with a kind of sanctimonious reverence and deem them like the Ark of the Covenant, too sacred to be touched. They ascribe to the men of the preceding age a wisdom more than human and assume what they did to be beyond amendment. We may as well require a man to wear the coat that fitted him as a child as to wear the civilized coat of his barbarous ancestors. So that's his later formulation to Samuel Kirchhoff. He never gave up on this idea. Madison wrote this extraordinary letter essentially crushing Jefferson's idea. Was Madison right that, you know, all of his quibbles that, how do you define a generation? Generations surely have obligations to the past and to the future. We need some majesty and credibility in constitutions. These kind of changes would weaken the majesty of the law. In your opinion, who won that debate? Pragmatically, Madison won the debate because here we are 230 plus years later, uh, still talking about the Constitution, the the 1789 Constitution. But Clay, to be honest, when I started this project, I was fully a Madisonian. (laughs) I am not so sure I'm a Madisonian anymore. 
because I do not think that our Constitution is doing a good job of constituting this polity anymore. Madison won the debate because, you know, Jefferson was unable to get the national conversation. Of course, there are many states that have these mechanisms, these sunset clauses and these mechanisms every 20 years or so on. But he was never able to convince the nation to do this. But I honestly think that there's some brilliance in Jefferson's uh, idea that each generation ought to write its own constitution. And I do think, Clay, and I think you probably agree with this, the core of Jefferson's idea that it is just another form of tyranny for a current people to be governed by a document written either one or now nine generations removed that's just another form of tyranny like tyranny of the majority, right? So Jefferson's antipathy, his, his angst about tyranny, I think is right and manifested in, the, in what I think is a brilliant idea. Now, whether or not we could actually get together in 2022 or 2025 and write a good constitution, that's subject for you and I to have a conversation about. I'm not so sure about that. But that doesn't take away from the brilliance of Jefferson's idea. Agreed. I've always felt that Jefferson deserved more serious scrutiny for this idea than he's gotten. It's usually just a kind of a throwaway. Isn't that typical of Jefferson and so on and so forth? And we are all Madisonians in a sense. But I've always wanted somebody to really take this seriously and to try to figure out, well, what what, what could we have gained by doing this aside from consent? I mean, I get consent, of course. But if you look at the Constitution today, the Second Amendment, for example, it would be very unlikely that a fresh Constitution could write the Second Amendment, at least as it exists. And look at us now, you know, living under a national suicide pact, and there's no way out. I mean, the the chance of of undoing the Second Amendment approaches zero. And yet, if we had a constitutional convention, if you could find a way to constitute it in some representative way, it would surely have to wrestle with this question in a way that would be creative and useful, right? I think you're absolutely right about this. And, and let me acknowledge right off the bat that, uh, that you're more of an expert than I am about this. So I'm curious about your thoughts, too. That said, I think you have the Second Amendment and the Ninth Amendment, Clay, that are equally you know, puzzling in a 21st century America. Let's not forget that the Second Amendment has this kind of preambulatory clause, right? A well-regulated militia being necessary and so on. That is, uh, for me, a defining feature of the Second Amendment. But I know it's not for folks uh, who, who ignore it or don't care for folks around the country. If you sat down and crafted a new one today, it would be very different but I'm not sure the core features of the Second Amendment, right, this notion of a right to, to own guns, would go away in this uh, highly politicized environment. In the same way, one of, my, one of my real pet peeves, and I have enjoyed tremendously the last several Thomas Jefferson hours where you and Lindsay have been talking about various things related to Supreme Courts and so on. The thing that's frustrating for me is the story of the Bill of Rights is told only partially. You know this as well uh, as anybody. Madison comes in the first Congress with 17 amendments. Only 12 make it through the congressional part and only 10 are ultimately ratified by the the states. But 
one of the ones that Madison is able to successfully implement, get through, write, and so on, is the Ninth Amendment. The enumeration of these rights does not deny or disparage others retained by the people. The goal of the framing and the founding generation was the expansion of liberty, not the limitation of liberty. Quite frankly, the Second Amendment is a real head-scratcher for me. The Ninth Amendment is a real head-scratcher for me for, the other, for other reasons. Why is it that, that, is, that it's been largely wiped off the face of the constitutional landscape? The total neglect of the Ninth Amendment. That notion that the Ninth Amendment is, so, uh, is, is now wiped off the landscape of uh, constitutional interpretation is totally antithetical to not just Jefferson, but also Madison, who was like, yeah, and you write so beautifully that we kind of live in a Hamiltonian world now, but we'd like to get back to a, a Jeffersonian, at least, temperament. Yes, we live in a Hamiltonian world. Hamilton was the one who was like, yeah, you guys are, you guys are playing with fire here if you, if you write these rights down. And ultimately, there are others that we will not only discover, but that we are endowed with. And you got to have a space for them. So a Bill of Rights is dangerous. And of course, the Anti-Federalists disagreed and opposed him. But the major players in American founding and the American founding all understood that these rights in the Bill of Rights were not the only ones we had. And so Jefferson uh, is right about that. To say that in another way, the founders understood that these rights do not constitute an exhaustive and final list of human right. Correct. Yeah. So. So doesn't this make for even greater irony that these jurists who call themselves originalists are so historically unsophisticated about what was intended in a republic That's right. that if they were originalists, they would be fighting for the Ninth Amendment right. instead of ignoring the Ninth Amendment. And so it strikes me that this, this a couple of things, this exposes the court as increasingly a third political branch of the government rather than the thing we thought it was going to be, right? Agreed. This notion of originalism is a, is a fraud. And, you know, Clay, I'll say this uh, for, your, for your broad listeners. It's a fraud on the right, and in some sense, there is an equal fraud on the left. The fraud on the right, when it comes to constitutional interpretation, is originalism. So I think there are problems on the left and problems on the right when it comes to constitutional interpretation. And to be fair, as you say, the left has done this as much as the right. We just happen to be in a rightist moment of right. the history of the court. These are honest, difficult, really complex issues in a free society, that these are political actors with life appointments. I need to interrupt at this point and say we need to take a short break from this conversation. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to the Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour this week, a one-on-one conversation between Clay Jenkinson and Bo Breslin. Pretty interesting fellow you found to talk to here, Mr. Jenkinson. Yes, uh, we've become friends. He's a man after my own heart. You know, I've been I've been at Jefferson now for, I suppose, 40 years, off and on, mostly on. And I remember when I began and I first came upon the idea that we should tear up the Constitution from time to time, and I was kind of flabbergasted. I thought, that sounds like chaos, which is how James it, Madison it probably read would it, be. too. <laughs> but, but Bo has taken it seriously and has wondered if this kind of national renewal wouldn't actually do us a great deal of good. And so in, in, I know we can't air the entire conversation, but we talked about what it would be like to find an algorithm to select 55 or 550 delegates from around the country who would truly represent the massive variety of the American people and bring to it the time and discipline it would take to write a new constitution and, and, and what that constitution might say. Well, it's a great conversation. I'm hearing it now for the first time as well. So let's return to it now, shall we? Yes. Back to the to Jefferson for a moment here. So one of the reasons that Jefferson wanted these generational um, constitutional conventions is because otherwise you force the courts to be powerful. So when we look at provisions of the Constitution today, uh, because Congress has not been clear about what it intends because the Constitution is 234 years old and they could not have anticipated cyber porn or a nine millimeter handgun or an AR-15 or the internet. This forces the judicial branch of government to take on what people like to call legislating from the bench because they have, we've given no other options. Somebody has to make these determinations Jefferson wanted it to be made in a fundamental civilizational way because we've refused to do that. We've created a super branch of government in the judiciary. And at their best, they're uneasy with that power. At their worst, they use it in a swashbuckling way. Absolutely true. And the thing that, the thing that I would add to that, you're, you're completely right across the board. The thing that I would add to that is um, Jefferson acutely understood that a judiciary as powerful as we currently currently see in 2022 is going to be the death knell of the democratic process, and in particular, uh, the House of Representatives. Right. So, a great frustration for me is the fact that um, the Congress is impotent, and quite frankly, they the Congress loves the fact that you have a federal judiciary who takes up the hard challenges, right? These are hard issues. But Jefferson and Madison and others never imagined that the Supreme Court would be the primary, much less the first, you know, the first line of defense on tough issues. And so for me, one of the things that I talk about in my book is term limits. Term limits for Congress members would be uh, phenomenally advantageous for our country. Secondly, the Senate being an undemocratic, uh, the most undemocratic legislative institution in perhaps the world, right, where California has two rep- two senators, yet 40 times the representation, uh, I mean, the number of citizens as Wyoming, the Senate's power is way too significant. So one of the things that I would do in order to lower the power of the courts is 
take down the power of the Senate, give enormous amount of power to the House of Representatives, give the Senate some things. I don't think you get rid of the Senate, but give the Senate some powers, but not nearly as much as it has now. Make the House of Representatives truly a representative institution, and you take down the power of the courts because it would force the House of Representatives to be making tough decisions. Right now, it's easy for them to either defer to the other branches of government or to the, uh, in particular, to the Supreme Court. So we're sort of talking about your proposals for constitutional change, and I want to hear more about that. But just to, to dwell on this for a moment, Bo, not only is the Senate profoundly unrepresentative in that California has 40 million people and North Dakota has 760,000 and we each have two senators. I mean, I get why this happened. And the, and the founding fathers not only did it, but they embedded that power, which is impossible to conceive of, another reason to start over. But it's worse, right? Because not only is there that profound problem at the heart of the Senate, but we also have created a supermajority system in the filibuster. So the, the heart of America for Jefferson is majority rule. The Senate is already an elite body designed to be the dish of tea that Washington talked about to slow things down. If you give it the filibuster, you're essentially giving it a stranglehold on progressive change of any sort. That's right. You're giving it a veto. I don't think Jefferson ever imagined the Senate would be as both powerful and dysfunctional as it currently is. Jefferson would want us to think about the ways in which now is the time to rethink a lot of these things. So what's frustrating for me, Clay, and thinking about Jefferson is if we had had generational constitutional change, even if it had been, okay, we're going to hold on to this, the main structure of the original 1787 document, and we're going to tinker with it in convention every 19 years as Jefferson wanted, or we blew the whole thing up and started over again, you would have had an evolutionary process. And no, we probably would not have gone from our current bicameral legislature to a parliamentary system. I don't think anywhere along the way we would have gone from that. But you would have had the management of difficult moments structurally in which those would have been taken care of uh, in a Jeffersonian world every 19 years. That would have made a difference in 2022. But right now we're stuck with a constitution that reflects uh, late 18th century mentality. It reflects it, but it also distorts it, I think. And, and that's what you've been saying, that, you know, that Jefferson would not recognize the Senate as it's currently constituted. But as you know, probably better than anyone, the American people are surprisingly small-c conservative about their constitution. So take just two things. One is the filibuster, and the other are nine members of the Supreme Court. People don't understand their constitution, I don't think, but to the extent that they do, they regard those as unalterable. Sacred. Of course, they're not unalterable. They're just, they're arbitrary. And so we could have 300 justices or three or anything in between, but but these norms have achieved semi-constitutional status and the American people show deep reluctance to adjust those things. And so that's on them, right? Correct. So uh, how long has it been? 150 years since we've had nine? But this is one of the rare instances, Clay, where you and I disagree, because I actually think you mentioned in a previous, uh, previous uh, session that you would stick with an odd number. I think we ought to have an even number of justices. And the reason why I think we ought to have an even number of justices is that it forces a, a majority opinion 
to be separated by more than a single vote. It's like tennis, you have to win by two. Exactly. So, um, and I think that makes the difference when you think about the Bush versus Gores of the world, right? You know, or, or the, um, some of the recent cases that we talked about, uh, that you guys have talked about in the last uh, year, in the last term. So I do think if you have 10, you have to have at least seven in the majority in order to, uh, to or six, four uh, in the majority in order to make it work. So I would be in favor of an even number, but you're right. Nine has somehow become sacred for some unknown reason. You, you made two proposals here about the court. One is 18 year terms. And the second is um, let's, let's increase the number, uh, but make it even. How do we get there from here? If you said to me, how do we get there from here? I would say impossible. Okay, so uh, <laughs> I think it actually is impossible because you know you have the Biden commission who talked about uh, fixed terms and so on, and that went in executive branch's drawer and nobody's paying any attention to it. So I, I, I don't think the political landscape is uh, receptive to any significant change on the Supreme Court. But let's imagine that it is. How do you get there from here? I, I do like the idea of a president getting two picks automatically. You know, let's eliminate the Merrick Garland problem, right? Let's eliminate the Amy Coney Barrett problem of, well, it just matters who, you know, who controls the Senate uh, if you're going to get your person through. So give each president two picks. What I would say is if, we're, if you and I are sitting in convention today, I would argue that the 18-year clock starts now for Supreme Court justices. You start the clock now, and then over time, in the next 18 years, you eventually start the opportunity for a president to be able to nominate two justices per term. I, I think that makes a, a whole lot of sense. I'm not a big fan of the, uh, of the commission, but I do think you try to make it as nonpartisan as possible. My answer to that would be, lower the power of, uh, of the Senate and uh, make the House of Representatives more powerful and may even be the branch that confirms important uh, Supreme Court justices, federal court justices, judges, and so on. Um, but I think you, you, that's the way you do it. So much there, Bo. One, one question is, um, just an observation, I think you're describing a change that would make us a little bit more, not parliamentary, but a little bit more like House of Representatives as yeah. the Commons, and then the Senate almost as the House of Lords that does judicial appointments and treaties and so on. Correct. Yeah, I think that's right. That makes sense. Again, so that's my second question. Get there from here. I despair of adjusting the Second Amendment. I despair of reinvigorating the Ninth. I despair of reforming the Senate. I despair of judicial reform. And Jefferson understood this. This is his genius. You can't get there from within the monopoly game. You have to clear the board, wipe it clean, and start over. Do you think? Here's the test of Jefferson, and you too. Do you think if we had a constitutional convention, if somehow we could put it together, that they would then be able to get to these reforms? In other words, the test of Jefferson is: Does it work? It's one thing to have the convention, but if you can't, if you can't build the reforms, then either, then then it was a, a mistaken idea, right? Well, I'm gonna uh, Clay. Uh, with all due respect, I'm gonna dance around that question a little bit. <laughs> and that is uh, one of the things that makes this the uh, most exciting conversation for me is the times in which we live. I do not believe that we would have the type of reforms we need if we sat in Philadelphia in the next four months and tried to bang something out. 
we're not in a good enough space. And we haven't read our Plutarch and Montesquieu either. Yeah, right. <laughs> that, that said, let me be an optimist here. I do think this is a temporary moment in American, in my lifetime, I'm 56. So in my lifetime, this is a temporary moment. It is, I think, the worst political moment of my lifetime too. And I think you agree with that. But I, th I also think that had we been heeding Jefferson's advice and at least had one or two conventions up till now, we would be in a situation to, to welcome more progressive or what I would describe as radical change. You are right. I'll finish here. You are right that framers are small C conservatives. They're going to gravitate to the middle. We don't need the gravitation to the middle because that's just tinkering with the, with the edges at the moment. We need some real significant, progressive, uh, interesting, radical ideas. And I think the time will come. Right now is not that time. So how broken are we? Are we broken? Are we flawed? I mean, I, to take all the time you want, how broken are we in 2022? I do think we are uh, approaching Rome at the end of its republic. I was about to mention Rome. I think we are too. <laughs> we have militias we attacking do. our capital. We have private armies. That's right. Do I think we are uh, irretrievably broken? No, I don't. Because uh, I, I think right now, maybe things will be different in 2025 if things continue to slide. But I do think we can still recover parts of what was, I think, a really solid republic for for a while, right? So one of the problems I think uh, we face, and this is a topic of conversation, is the media. So how does the media contribute to what is a flawed regime, right? Well, one of the reasons why the media contributes this way is they tend to highlight those things that point out our flaws. Are there moments where there are good politics happening? Yes, they tend to be at the local and sometimes at the state level, which we tend to ignore. I'm not saying that the media should gravitate to, you know, the school board meetings and the, the city council meetings, but boy, there's some real debate that goes on in those uh, moments that just never sees the light of day. And so this bickering that happens in our tribal society right now that gets the attention of the media is contributing to this kind of perpetuation of us having a broken political system. One thing that's fascinating, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, is, you know, I read yesterday, folks are frustrated with the White House because Biden has always tried to walk a fine bipartisan line, right? He's not trying to be, as much as he can, anti-Republican with a big R, with a capital R. And yet politics these days is, it's a zero-sum game. The only way you win is by cutting your opponent off at the knees. That's not the way Jefferson saw politics. And he was probably ashamed of the way in which, I think I read from you, he was ashamed of the way in which he treated Adams in 1800 for that, of that particular election. Getting back to a Jeffersonian way where civic life was the greatest of all virtues and your commitment to the public realm, to the res publica, was much more important than your commitment to your own passions and interests and uh, so on. I think if we recover even a little bit of that, 
we'll get out of uh, this mire and, and start start walking upwards. I know I sound like I'm um, the pessimist in this conversation. How do you recover civic virtue and civic religion when we have reached this point of debasement? Yeah, so I think you've, uh, I think the only way you do it is incentivize it and value it. I think you, you know, people need practice, national public service. Sometime, I think you said sometime between 18 and 25, I would probably narrow it between, uh, you have to enter into national public service sometime between 18 and 20. Um, doesn't have to be the military, but national public service, you have to learn the skills of what it means to, to have a higher purpose. And I don't sound, you know, I don't want to sound Pollyannish here. Like, you know, you, you, you've inspired me in so many ways. I don't want to sound Pollyannish, but I also want to recognize that it makes a difference when you are in the AmeriCorps or the military or Teach for America, or some of these programs where you're giving back for two years and there is a higher purpose. So uh, I think that's one of the ways in which we can make civic virtue a much more important part of, uh, of our everyday lives. It seems to me that that's slightly more doable than the other things that we're proposing. In other words, I could, I could see some modified limited form of national service becoming the a policy of the United States. Okay. Um, I, I don't think that's an impossibility. I don't think it's going to happen, but I don't think that it's an impossibility. So, yeah. so first of all, I want to just say, we agree on almost every subject. When you're talking, I, before you mentioned national service, it was sitting at the top of my head, civic, you know, are we Rome? That was sitting at the top of my head. That's dangerous, uh, dangerous when two people agree as much as we're doing. What did you learn? How does it play out for you when you actually try to do this? The soaring language of Jefferson's declaration in the beginning. You know, we don't spend as much time talking about the laundry list of complaints that he has. But I think one of the most important lines uh, that goes to the question of civic virtue is the last line that he writes, right? For the support of this declaration with a firm reliance in the protection of divine providence, we mutually, we, mutually pledged to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Jefferson put sacred honor at the end for a reason. It was more important to him than lives and our fortunes. We need to take a short break from this one-on-one -on -one conversation between Clay Jenkinson and Bo Breslin. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, our third and final segment of a one-on-one conversation between Bo Breslin and Clay Jenkinson. And let's return to this conversation. Thank you. So what did I learn? Well, first of all, um, you know, I, I, I learned that when you play out Jefferson's idea of generational constitutions, you have to understand that constitutional convention framers, delegates, are going to most likely resolve issues that are right in front of them. So let's take 1825, right? As you know from the book, I took the spirit of Jefferson and the spirit of his idea, and I took the, um, the average life expectancy as my, uh, as, as my uh, year. So my first constitutional convention is 1825. Well, of course, they're going to think about the Electoral College because John Quincy Adams' uh, election of 1824 was a disaster, right? <laughs> so the one thing I learned is that it's most likely the things that are immediately in front of them are the ones that are going to get most attention. That may not be a great thing um, when, when we're talking about kind of a thoughtful reconstruction of a constitutional document, but it's likely that's, that, that would happen. The other thing I learned is that uh, it matters who's in the room. When I'm doing 1825 play, 1863, 1903, 1953, I'm using historical figures who I, who, who I imagine would have been in the room. The Daniel Webster's in 1825, you know, the Booker T. Washington's in 1903 and so on. I'm using those figures and what they stood for, but it matters who's in the room. So it was a fascinating experiment to think of when do people of color enter into the conversation? When do women into, enter into the conversation, right? They would not, women would not have been invited for any of the 19th century uh, constitutional conventions. Uh, and maybe probably not even the 1903 one, although women's suffrage was a major thing. So who's in the room makes a difference. It would be impossible to conceive of a constitutional convention in the United States today that wasn't broadly representative of the different groups, genders, religious outlooks, and so on of American life. I think we've understood that inclusion is essential to the democratic process, even if we're imperfectly embodying it. I think you're absolutely absolutely right about that. What would be interesting is how we think about interest group involvement. Larry Sabato, great University of Virginia, faculty member, uh, uh, just a a huge thinker, as you know, he said, if you're going to have a constitutional convention now, make it kind of a citizen delegation. So the Bo Breslins and the Clay Jenkinsons of the world have uh, just as much of a shot, if not more of a shot than the politicians in Washington. I think that's smart. And what I write in the book is if you had a constitutional convention now, it's obviously not going to be 55 delegates. It's got to be a significant amount more. But what if you put together 435 that were citizens, and then each state got to, to, each state legislature got to pick two quote unquote experts. So they had somebody who kind of knows, like the Madison of the world, who kind of knows what it means to craft a constitution. Clay, you could be one of the two experts that comes from North Dakota, right? And I would, I have no doubt that you'd be seriously considered for that. But you got to have some some expertise, but the majority have to be citizens. And I think at the end of the day, if you have enough people, you'd have enough representation. I've done talks like this um, across the country um, over the last year. 
And a lot of folks have challenged me by saying things like, well, after January 6th, how can you be assured that certain people are not going to be invited? Well, at the end of the day, we may not agree on things like the Second Amendment and so on. And maybe I'm too much of an optimist, Clay. But at the end of the day, I do not believe the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys would be selected or elected into the convention. They may have influence. They may protest and so on. But I don't think those folks are going to be in there. I think it's more rational people, which strikes me as, um, as probably a smart move. But again, we gravitate to the center because we're so polar, uh, polarized at the moment. Whenever, and in the course of 30 years, whenever I've talked about this in public, the immediate reaction of everybody is, oh my God, we couldn't, no, we, no, we never, this would be worse. We'd ruin it. Are you kidding? And it always really disappoints me because I think Jefferson would say, well, if you're, if, if you think that, then you don't deserve to be in a free society, right? If you yeah. despair that you, that the people couldn't do this. Right. And I think people do discipline themselves when they're in situations like this. You'd obviously have some outliers. Do you think that there is a computer algorithm that could give us 435? So give us the two from each state. That's fine. Yep. Do you think there's an algorithm that could find a representative sample of Americans? You might say they have to have a high school degree. I don't know. But, right. but do you think it could be done? Yes. I do think it could be done. And, you know, I don't think it would be easy. And there would be all sorts of politics surrounding the list when it came out. But I do think it can be done. And I think it can be done relatively easily. The question is, is it like jury duty where you, if you get selected, uh, are you able to say, oops, don't want to do it this time. I'll do it next time. You know, I I, I don't know. We'd have to work out those details. Would you rather have an elective or jury duty? My argument would be, if you start to enter in the question of campaigning for positions, you start to enter dangerous territory. One of the things that, that I thought was interesting, you asked me again what I learned about um, thinking about our constitution in a Jeffersonian way is how do you take, say, the equal protection clause and reframe it to be powerful enough in the 21st century so that you don't get uh, you know, some of the, uh, so that it becomes a tool and a weapon for racial uh, issues in this country. Because that right now, the Equal Protection Clause has been helpful in some ways, but not helpful in others. How do you retool an existing constitutional clause so that it actually uh, can be a powerful tool? That's something that I would love to have a convention wrestle with. It may take four months just alone to talk about race. But I think it's worthy of the uh, of the conversation. I just worry that they wouldn't they wouldn't touch it. I'm, I'm here. I'm more of a Jeffersonian optimist than maybe you are. I think if you chose this, if you had an algorithm that chose these people, and they met in secrecy and they hammered these questions, I think that they would adjust the Second Amendment. I think they would say everyone has a right to guns, of course. Okay. Right. Um, but there needs to be universal background checks and certain types of weapons are obviously weapons of war and yeah. they would limit that. I think that would be hard. It would be shouting matches, but I think that in the end that the will of the people is more enlightened than our constitution, which is where we started. Right. I think they would, they would clarify this and, and they would remove the militia clause because we don't have a militia and 
um, and therefore we don't really need a second amendment, but that's, that's water under the bridge. Secondly, I think that we would wrestle with race, and I think we would say something like, we're rewriting the 14th Amendment, and this time we mean it. Yeah. It does include African Americans. There will be penalties for violating this, that you, you can't twist this in ways that allow black codes. I think we could, we could tighten the 14th Amendment, and, and then nobody could slip around it. They would have to, well, it's obvious. The convention said you cannot discriminate in these ways, because I think Clarence Thomas and Alito, at least, would undo the civil rights acts if they could, Agreed. which is a pretty profound, awful thing to say. Um, third, I think that we would adjust the Senate. I think that the American people don't know, don't think about this because they're busy living their lives. But I think that if we had a constitutional convention and we said, okay, the Senate made sense in 1787, sort of, does it make sense when California is larger than the population of the United States was then by five times or by eight times? I think we would adjust it. And I have a plan for 100 senators. Some states get five, other states get four, mid-states get three, North Dakota gets its one, Wyoming gets its one. You could easily limit the Senate to 100 and give California, Texas, Florida, New York, Illinois, okay. Pennsylvania, 543, somewhere in there. Give the bottom tier their mandatory one. But I think you could do that. And I think you could hammer that out. In other words, I think that Jefferson was right that there are A, there are things that can't be done by routine legislation. B, the amendment bar has been set too high and we're just stuck with that. Totally. C, so we're not going to amend our way out of this. And the last amendment was a frivolous one about congressional salaries. 1992, you know, two generations ago, or at least one. C, you can't do it, or B, you can't do it by routine legislation. C, when you crack it open, as we saw in the Canadian Constitutional Convention, they they solved the problem they of did. Quebec. They, they solved the federal balance. They, they brought Native peoples in in a huge way that could never have happened through routine legislation. I believe that, that enlightenment happens and that these 435 people would actually be a better measure of the national will than the United States Congress, which okay. is pretty awful to think about. But so I'm an optimist. I think we could. Now, some things aren't going to get ever fixed, right? There's always going to be racism in America. But you can make it harder for there to be racists in America. And you, or it's always going to be money in our politics. But you could make it a lot better restraining the power of money in our elections, in our politics than we now have. But you're not going to get there through Congress, right? Ever, ever. That's true. I am so, so fired up by, by your idea. But don't you think that this is true, that Jefferson was right, that the people, I mean, look, think of the, your, your plan for the House. If the Senate were reduced to some other things, the House would pass a, a National Voting Rights Act and has. The House would pass reasonable gun restraints and has. If you think of the number of things that the House has done on environment, on race, on gender, on um, on, on uh, the place of money in American life, on, on, on the right to vote unimpeded, they've already done all that work. Right. And the veto didn't come from the Supreme Court. The veto came from North Dakota senators, Wyoming senators, Alaska senators, Alabama senators, Arkansas senators. Right. So you could do this, but you have to you have to give it you have to try. And so. Maybe a modified approach to this, Bo, would be to have a national constitutional initiative around the, 
the celebration that was not necessarily going to be binding. In other words, uh, that that this would be an exercise that might turn out to be something you want to. I think that the American people would be very frightened of actually giving them the power to do it. Yeah. But if you made it an exercise and this was part of our national celebration, I think you would show that people are, are largely high-minded when they get in a room. I agree. Uh, I, I think that's a, that's a really good way of doing it. One of the things that I think is interesting that you, you mentioned so much in your level of sophistication, so I, one of the things that I think is so interesting is a lot of the original compromises, right, of that were in the original constitutional document, and the most obvious being the three-fifths compromise, have largely gone away. Why isn't it that the bicameral Senate, which was a compromise, right, out of Connecticut, why haven't we tinkered with that? Those are the, you know, why is that sacred, but some of the other compromises in the Constitution have been amended out of? Um, so, and you're absolutely right about, uh, about Canada. They were able to constitutionalize French-speaking Canadians so that they were recognized in their constitutional document, we should do the same our, uh, in at least the preamble, if not in the body of the text. Last question for today. Uh, at some point during this process, you must have asked yourself certain questions like, what am I doing here? You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm writing fiction that includes historical figures and this is going to be a uh, this book's going to have, have its own strange niche. And yeah. secondly, were there times when you were writing this when you thought, oh, I see that Madison was actually right here, that Jefferson, this uh, there are strengths and weaknesses to Jefferson's plan. Well, I think that, so. So I think the the I'll take them in in uh, reverse order. Good. Yeah, of course. I mean, I I think there are probably moments where you think Madison was probably right. You know, I mean. Uh, Structurally, I, you know, I think uh, there are parts of the Constitution that that still work, and that Madison, you know, it, the enduring Constitution has been a source of stability in places, right? So, I do think there are there are aspects of Madison's um, idea that still resonate. Um, no question about it. I feel, Bo, that we can't go on. We're in an unsustainable situation here. The American people want government to deliver. Government can't deliver. And the courts in their conservative new supermajority are also going to really uh, gut the administrative state, which I think is actually constitutionally sound, but it, it eliminates another possibility of reform. And so we're stuck here. And these reforms that you're talking about I mean, there are some people whose oxes are gored, but this doesn't ruin America. This saves America. No, no. it's not. It's not so radical as to uh, as to cause deep, deep controversy. What's radical, Clay, is the idea of altering the Constitution. People can't wrap their minds around that. So I close with the. Some men look on constitutions with sanctimonious reverence and deem them like the Ark of the Covenant. That's where we are. That's where we are. Jefferson, I mean, for all that's wrong with Jefferson, and there's lots that's wrong with Jefferson, he nailed this. He did. And it's not that his solution of tearing up the Constitution is necessarily the right one, but he said, you're going to get into exactly this position if you, if you cling to this thing as some sort of sacred writ. 
And so the founding fathers for all of their checks and balances and so on weren't able to fix this because it takes that civic virtue element also. So we're in a pickle. And I think at least if every person teaching constitutional law or constitutional history read your book, it would be a great provocation to, to this conversation. Yeah, you know, I, I hope that, 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 I'm glad you think that. Ultimately, I just want to contribute to a conversation like we're having here. And, you know, it would be an amazing opportunity for us to do a constitutional convention. At the end of the day, as I, I'll finish where I started, which was Jefferson's idea is a brilliant idea, right? The fact that we didn't, we adopted Madison's idea doesn't mean that Jefferson wasn't right back in uh, late 18th century and that periodic constitutional conventions would have been a better strategy for us in the current state of affairs. Even if Madison, if Madison could appear today, even he would say, are you nuts? Are you still using this 18th century instrument? Agreed. That's, I mean, that's yeah. the irony of it. Thank you so much. This is a perfect day. I really appreciate our conversation. See you Thank soon. You. Thank you so much. Interesting conversation with Bo Breslin. We're going to have more conversations. We both agreed that even if there is not a constitutional convention in our time, it would be great to have some mock constitutional conventions. And maybe the best way to commemorate the 250th birthday of the United States in 2026 would be to attempt to rewrite the Constitution of the United States for what Lincoln might have called a rebirth of American civic consciousness. More conversations with Bo Breslin to come. Join us next week for another important edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite Number no. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson. <laughs>